Hey everybody, welcome back to the cabin. I'm Sean James, the host of the My Stuff Reliance podcast, and I'm here to talk about gardening today, which is not a topic that I often talk about, but if you've been following me, then you see that I've been uh, gardening my entire life and specifically growing veg fruits and vegetables. And um, because of that, I like to follow accounts and watch other people do it and came across Hugh's content on Instagram probably first and then YouTube. I'm not sure, two or three years ago, maybe. So I've been kind of following around along in the background and finally got a chance to reach out to you. And we're going to have a little conversation about growing your own food today. So Hugh, if you want to just introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored to be representing Team Grow Food on your podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm a 24-year-old gardener uh, i'm incredibly passionate about all things permaculture um i love that as a as a way of approaching um design and decision making in terms of creating a more kind of like self-sufficient lifestyle i fell into gardening because i just grew up with it i grew up on a small holding um my dad was very interested in it almost it wasn't like catering a complete diet but you know we had we had cows, we had sheep, mm. pigs, chickens, ducks, an orchard, all of, the, all of the like. So, and of course, a vegetable garden. So I started gardening when I was three. Um, when I was 12, a friend of mine was making YouTube videos about gaming. So he had his phone and he was filming with one hand and gaming on the other. And he had about 200 views. And I thought, whoa, 200 views. Well, back then my voice hadn't broken. So it's what. Whoa, 200 views. That's amazing. And I live in a very rural part of Wales, um, which is in the United Kingdom. So it's a country that is separate to England. Um, and a lot of people ask, is it near London? So it's around about five hours away um, via car or train journey. It's very, very slow train, but it's beautiful. It goes goes through the mountains. Um, and my my growing zone is roughly kind of, it's put as growing zone eight, um, but I was looking at the average uh, last frost dates, and we seem to match the average first and last frost dates of more so um, zone 5B slash 6, uh, which is quite interesting to see. We just don't get the, the cold um, as much in the winter. So, yeah, temperate climate, and uh, I started making videos, and the rest is history. So, well. You said it started at 12, so 12 years you've been uploading videos? Yeah, exactly. Half of wow. my life. Yeah, yeah. It's, wow. um, I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so you've, it looks like recently you've changed, you've acquired your own. So, so it seems that a lot of your content up until a certain point was filmed at your father's place or at your, your family home. Yeah, and I, I have That's, that's, that's yeah, recently I changed. I haven't been living there for about four years. Okay. It's about half an hour away, and I have this new project, which is just starting to enter its third year. It's on a seven-acre parcel of land. Uh, so a friend of my colleagues got a homestead, and they were like, we've got too much land. Would you like to use one of the fields um, and go into a, like a long-term uh, agreement? And I was like, yes, please. It's only 10 minutes away. Uh, so <laughs> that was a, a, an appeal, and it's this beautiful south-facing um, field um, around a mile from the coast um, so I use a lot of seaweed in the garden obviously because that, that's a fantastic resource and mm -hmm. 
yeah, I, it's just, it's finally at that stage where it's time to say goodbye to the old garden and have this, this new garden, which is, it's kind of like the, the main part is this half size. In the UK, we have allotments. So it's a half size allotment plot. So that's 125 square meters. I'm sorry, I don't know the square feet. Um, roughly 1,300 square feet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or half the size of a doubles tennis court, um, just within the boundaries. And then, and then it's the rest of the field where we're doing a lot of interesting projects. Hmm. So that's so the what interests I think probably a lot of people now. Like used to be, of course, that um, if you were in Britain, as as my ancestors were, you came to North America for opportunity and and in a lot of cases land and land ownership, and um, you know the allotments that <laughs> what was allocated was you know in Ontario about a hundred acres was the typical homesteading plot, and then wow. as you go east, it was six hundred or west, so it was six hundred and forty acres, so a section. So a mile by a mile. So you can imagine coming from Britain and and then having this opportunity to this vast land and that. What do you do with that? But things have changed dramatically. Prices of real estate globally, but here I can speak specifically, have gone up to a point where most people can't afford anything. So I just today released a video or filmed a video talking about what you can do on small acreage and and you know how small an acreage you can actually grow enough food for for a family on and it is it's a lot smaller than people realize we haven't had to experiment with that here in north america until recently but um, of course people like yourselves have been perfecting this for hundreds of years uh, growing in small spaces and and working as a community too so somebody produces one thing and somebody else produces the other Uh, yeah so quite different but in on, on on the other hand quite similar yeah, I'm I'm wondering like what is for you like in terms of normal grade like pasture land, what what average price per per acre is it around you? Yeah, uh, so interesting. So I like I've kind of specialized throughout my entire life with uh degraded or less desirable land. So I've always uh, purchased land or or operated in areas that were poor for agriculture and even for tourism. So uh, quite cheap comparatively, but just to put it in perspective, like right now, if you were to buy a piece of property, um, say two or three acres here, that's just bush, not agricultural land. It's a few hundred thousand dollars Canadian. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if I go down to agricultural zones, um, well, even across Canada, um, in somewhat desirable places. So I was looking at some land down where my family's from down in Nova Scotia in the Annapolis Valley. And it was, uh, it's 400,000 for 40 acres of fairly decent growing land, but that's probably half of what I would pay here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard. Cause I think um, that, you know, that there, there is a lot of land out there. Um, and I kind of, especially if you like look at cities now, I kind of wish that it isn't practical, but I wish that everyone had access to their own like little patch of land to just do whatever they want. I think it's so important. It's funny because a common comment, and I get this on almost every video that not everybody can do that. If everybody did that, there'd be no land left. Well, that's simply not true. If you look at how much food you can grow on a small parcel and the fact that you'll steward it better if you owned it, um, and you would do everything you can to improve that land. Like, I, I think it's quite the opposite. I think if we all had a little quarter acre parcel, 
be amazing how much food we could produce and how much higher a standard of living we would have personally. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's, um, it, it's kind of, there's, there's a, a, such a power in having a small space. Um, it's, it's a bit like, I, I, I mentioned cities. If it's a bit like that skyscraper mentality, when you have a, a lack of land, you kind of like go up, you go vertical. Um, I think in terms of, if you only have a small gardening, the garden, yes, you can go vertical. But I think, I think where where the um, yields really come from is just like you, because you, you're forced with a, a confined amount of space. You have to be a lot more clever with your planning. Um, and what I found since actually downgrading to a garden is around three or four times as small. I reckon it's just as productive because I am I'm um, a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm spending a bit more time thinking about it because I don't have the luxury of opening my wings and oh, I'll do a bit of this, bit of that. I'm like, oh, I, I need this to make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's been, I, I've quite enjoyed a little bit of um, a perspective shift in that. And I've been, I've been blown away by how much you can grow in, in, in a small space. God, let's talk about that quickly. Or not quickly, but you, um, you wrote a book and is it, um, it's coming out or it's out now? Um, it's coming out. So it's it's coming out in the UK in early March. Sadly, because it, it was like right at the, it only went to um, the printers at, at Christmas time. Um, it's coming out because it has to come across to the US. So it's coming out in in mid May. Um, but I am I am selling it myself on my website regenerative.press. So if you get it through there, it'll actually come earlier than the US edition. The only thing that's going to change is um, how you spell how you spell certain crops and certain words really. So you can, right. can get it a bit earlier in time for your season. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Yeah. So it's, it's a book that I, it's a project that I've done with my colleague, Sam uh, on Instagram. He's known as chef Sam Black. He is a professional chef by trade and I stole him from the kitchen and I, sh- I showed him the world of gardening. Um, which was crazy. If he was a bit like a fish out of water to begin with, he was like, "What? Another tea break?" Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, but but we we get on like a house on fire, and so he's seen the the perspective from what the land produces, and and we have this thing where, you know, I think we, a lot of restaurants have it backwards. Very often they're they're demanding the the producer, the farmer, the fisher, the the hunter what they want. Um, whereas for us, it's like we, a, a restaurant or a diet should respond to what the land provides at that certain time. Um, so yeah, it's seasonality, but it's, it's, it's seasonality without any excuse. Of course, there are different preserving methods to extend those seasons, to extend the flavors, to have a fusion of those different seasons. Um, but we, we were just kind of in this agreement that, uh, cooking and growing or the producing of food is very much um, seen as two very separate disciplines but for us it's it's uh, two sides you know it's 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 the same thing so like cooking starts when you when you sow the first seed or you fire that arrow and you know um, gardening finishes when when the harvest is in your belly it's one continuous process and we wanted to create a book catering to people who have a smaller space, so it's, it's smaller than the average back-size um, kind of suburban garden here in the UK, a half-size lot and plot, 
just to show people that you can grow a lot of food. And we, we grew almost 600 kilos of food in the first um, in the first uh, kind of nine, 10 months. So uh, in terms of a conversion, that's around 1,400, 1,500 pounds of food. Mm-hmm. Have any idea how many calories that would be? Uh, no. So I've got a lot of fun calculations to do now. We, we grow over 50 different crops. So we were growing... A big thing for me is is to ensure that you have flavor and diversity of flavor. You don't want to just be growing. You know, it could have been technically more productive if I just stuck to four or five staple crops, but you would get slightly bored out of your mind. I wanted to make sure that I had lots of options. Um, so we're growing all growing all sorts of herbs, all sorts of um, vegetables, mainly annual focused. Um, and so my my next uh, project now that the book is actually done and I have a little bit. Uh, this is this is dangerous territory. I have a little bit of spare time. Um, I'm going to do some calculations, working out what the value was, um, working out mm. a approximate calories. However, I I don't like to go down the the calorie tunnel vision because if you look at a lot of the food that you get from the supermarket, nutritional density has been declining from our foods for many many decades. So compared mm-hmm. to like the uh, 70s or 80s you're having to in some cases eat two or three times the amount to get the same quantity of nutrients um but you're you're bulking out lots more calories because in terms of the supermarket they pay farmers based on weight not by nutritional density so that mm-hmm. that's a that's a, a really important thing to uh, i'd like to highlight yeah, that's fair. that's important. Yeah, for sure. I focus the the opposite on the calories first because I'm looking at it from a self reliance perspective. Mm. So my philosophy is you know, secure your your calories, secure your what you need to survive your macros, and then. But also because we're very health conscious and we try to do yeah. everything organically, we try to get all of our nutrients from our food and from our surroundings. Uh, then we can diversify in order to provide those things so and a lot of that can be provided in, in our case is uh, going to be perennial based yeah so my my case is um with this got with this garden it, it's enough vegetables for two adults to be completely self-sufficient year-round um in terms of their vegetable needs and that's what i'm trying to focus it's like i would love a stage where i'm, I'm like completely reliant i'm off grid um, I'm not. I'm not dependent on anything. I can like look after myself, and I can look after my family. That that that's like the end goal. Um, I think my perspective in terms of nutrition is that micronutrients are just as important as macro, especially in the long term. Um, there's a lot of um, kind of hidden malnourishment in our populations where people are getting plenty of calories, but there's a lot of issues with with the lacking of of the micronutrients, um, and so. It, it's it's something important um, for me moving forward is to is to um, tread the line between uh, filling your belly um, and uh, and feeling full because it's not a fun place to be in a constant state of hunger, um, mm-hmm. but al- to also make sure that you're not going to have any long term implications from that. Yeah, and it's not only a lack of. Um... A variety and composition of the food itself but it, the the nutrients that are missing from the soils and i'm not sure what the soils are like where you are but here because of the industrial uh, food system the way we mm. basically rape the land there's the, the soils uh, eroding but it's also been de- depleted and it's funny because i i told the story a couple of times but back in i remember 2010 geography which would have been 
what would that be like 1985 or 86? I remember my um, geography teacher telling us that the most, what we thought was the most productive land in the nearby marshes where almost all of our vegetables were grown, that had soil had been depleted of nutrients by decades prior to then and that uh, you couldn't grow anything in it without fertilizer and implements and supplements so yeah. it, but you drive by it and it's perfectly flat it's a floodplain it's black black deep soil and you would think wow that's rich soil but that, that's simply not the case so we're we're uh, we're uh, eating food that's that is drawing or is grown in this soil that does not have the vitamins and the minerals uh, present in order for the food that those uh, plants to uptake so yeah. you but you can't see that just looking at it and like you hear the criticisms that our food is just grown for transportability basically and, and perishability but you also are not getting the nutrients that you think you're getting it's not just that they're kind of bland compared to what you can grow in your garden yeah and, and there's an also th- there's also that link between flavor and nutrition <laughs> as well like Right. That's why, partly why homegrown food, yes, you put in, in the work, but it tastes so good. Or like, you know, wild meats taste so like, you know, like venison or something like that tastes um, infinitely better than something that like a, a farmed venison. Same with fish, you know. So it's, they're, they're, we're, we're losing this, um, we're becoming kind of divorced from the, the link between um, nutrition and flavour with like fast food you've got all those artificial flavors it's really confusing um our mindsets and i, I wouldn't call it in, industrial farming farming it, it's just mining it's very exploitative farming mm-hmm. is where you like steward and you care for the land um, um and that's something like for me is paramount because if i want to be able to produce food for myself i need to make sure that the soil is in a good enough state to keep on providing that and so it, it creates some um, it creates a situation where you have to have a mutual respect. Otherwise it will just come back to bite you in the future. Well, in creating a fairly complex system where industrial farming is very, or extractive farming, whatever you want to call it is very um, linear, very simple. Here's the input and here's the output where Mm. a regenerative farm farm or a, a historical farm would be would have multiple crops, multiple animal species on that. Yeah. And all, how those are all integrated is, you know, provides a, a healthy ecosystem, but that's lacking. And I, I talked about that on this video that I just made that um, land being so expensive, first of all, and being forced into less desirable degraded land like I have, there's no opportunity to have enough livestock in the system that would provide the manure, for example, to help improve those soils. So you have to start looking at alternative ways to do that. And we, what's different, like these, and I did mention also my two properties, they were both homesteaded back in the 1800s and they were both abandoned because they were so unproductive. But what we have now, first of all, is the wealth, but also the transportation and the knowledge to improve soil by bringing in inputs from somewhere else where it wouldn't have been practical to let's say get a bunch like a truckload of straw or hay from from the uh, prairies here a couple thousand miles away and bring that in to add organic material to the to the soil they couldn't have done that in the past so we um, i'm not sure how if you, like where you're getting sea i mean seaweed that, that's a great resource to have nearby like a, a lot of us don't have really anything other than what we're going to be able to plant in order to, such as cover crops and they're just uh, bulky materials to build that soil. It's harder to get the manure in. 
but it, yeah. but it's possible. It, it is possible, and I think there's a few quick wins. Like my kind of background is is a whole permaculture side of things, and so there's this thing like everyone's like, oh no, don't use any fossil fuels. Like I get why, but in permaculture, it's like if you're going to design a landscape that is going to be like the whole idea is that it's going to permanently kind of be there or, or the idea is that you're going to provide food that in a very um, sustainable way, like then it's absolutely okay using, you know, getting a digger that's running on gas to, to, to create that because the long-term benefits is far going to outweigh the short term. And so if you're setting up a homestead and it's really poor quality um, land, I see nothing wrong with say, like a, a really good one is to get um, kind of organic or, or natural chicken manure pellets. They're like fertility bombs. So what I'd maybe suggest doing is is applying those, growing some kind of cover crop or green manure to start to um, to build up the the biomass, and then your soil the following year will be in a much better state to then start producing food. Um, so yeah, and anywhere where you can um, think, okay, yes, I'm gonna. Ha- because nothing can be perfect. So it, it's a case of looking at what is the most effective um, for like the least impact. And I, I like to look at my community to see what is available. And so I, I collect a lot of uh, kind of vegetable scraps from local cafes and restaurants. I think used coffee grounds are fantastic as well. Um, a lot of people worry about them being high in acidic, but they lose all of their acidity uh, during the process of extracting the coffee. So it's a, a pH of about 6.7, which is fine for the vast majority mm. of uh, things that you grow. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then if, you, if you're trying to get kind of, if you're just looking at your own family scale, the, the next stage I would look at in terms of fertility building would be uh, introducing chickens, um, chickens as, as, a, as a tool for composting, um, transferring all of that waste into um, uh, manure compost you're going to be adding um, dry leaves or grass or whatever for the bedding and then you start to get that bulk material plus as a side effect you start getting protein into your diet in the form of eggs yeah and then so i think two good takeaways there one that um look at what you have available in your area and take advantage of it. In my case, I've actually literally been harvesting moose droppings. Oh, wow. Just, that's, that's great. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's the resource I have. I have plentiful moose. I, I don't have other animals nearby. So, but the other thing is to, to uh, really focus that energy. So if you have pellets, for example, or if you have chickens, they're it's going to create a certain amount of manure. Like people always, we're looking for my compost piles, for example, from my kitchen scraps. I'm mm-hmm. like, I've got like half an acre garden. A few kitchen scraps are not creating yeah. enough compost and to to inc- make much of an, a difference in the increasing of the fertility of this land. But I'm surrounded by forests from trees. I'm cutting down and um, improving the habitat by making wildlife clearings and and uh, allowing sunlight to reach the forest floor, which is causing regeneration. As I'm cutting up that wood, I'm creating sawdust and wood chips. And that that's my main resource. I can build a lot of bulk, a lot of, put a lot mm-hmm. of carbon in the soil. But if I also chip the green stuff, like the, the saplings and the, the uh, leaves and all that, and the ferns and all those other things, I have a, almost a perfect mix of um, 
of carbon and nitrogen in order to create that compost. And then I put, then everything else I put into that system, like fish remains, actual bones from the animals that I harvest and the blood from the animals, the urine that we collect because, because we don't uh, put it down a septic system or into mm. the sewer system. We use that urine, which is really higher in nitrogen. Um, so we have uh, lots of inputs, but then we concentrate that. So instead of spreading that evenly across a quarter acre, about two quarter acre gardens, plus another probably half an acre of like orchard and, and berry bushes and so on, uh, each plant, just feed that plant directly first, get lots of nutrients to that plant and that, and that becomes robust and even that plant as it's growing especially if it's perennial bushes and and uh, trees they're dropping leaves and adding their own organic material over time so yeah. that's so again instead of broadcasting your nutrients really focus them if you can yeah i do a kind of a scaled down version with some of the annuals as well instead of worrying about adding fertility like a, a layer to the whole bed if i'm if i'm if my resources are quite stretched I can just add fertility to the base of every seedling that I transplant. And the other thing as well is, is looking at kind of certain weeds that are grown in your area or, or utilizing techniques such as um, Korean natural farming, where you can harvest a bunch of grass, you put it in a bucket, add some water, add a bit of leaf mold or something, and you can like leave it for six to 12 months. Then you strain it. Um, a lot of people get caught up because it's, oh, it's anaerobic, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't actually believe in the anaerobic is always bad um narrative i've I've seen really powerful effects from it and what you get is a a fantastic um fantastic liquid feed that you can um, supplement your plants if they're struggling a bit and you mentioned woodchip as well woodchip is incredibly exciting as a resource there's a there's a farmer here in the uk a guy called ian tolhurst and he's been farming his, oh, I think it's like 20, 30 years, maybe more. And his only input is wood chip. And he's just growing uh, annual crops. Um, and his his soil is fantastic. He says he gets around, um, his, his livestock are earthworms. And he has around 10 to 15 hmm. million earthworms per acre. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Just using wood chip and getting a, a huge, huge amount of success from that. Yeah, my best potatoes this year are the ones that I missed harvesting that were in a compost pile that was mainly wood chips and just the unbelievable productivity out of that. And I know I didn't get all the potatoes out of it again this year, so I know I'm going to get another crop there. And they don't yeah. seem to get disease because it's just it's just so rich in such a rich fungal and bacterial um, environment that uh, it's just incredible how well everything grows there. Yeah, yeah. And leaves. We have, of course, I have live in a forest so we have plenty of leaves as well so between leaves and and wood chips yeah i mean uh, what i did discover mind you is that when i put the wood chips too thickly too deeply on my raised beds that they did steal the nitrogen and i got very poor growth if i didn't plant the plants deep enough into the what had already been composted if they were too close to the surface they just sat there stagnant for for most of the year yeah, so in that situation, there's. Um, have you come across ramiel chip wood? No, I don't think so. So, uh, uh, ramiel chip wood is super cool. Um, it originates from France, and ramiel chip wood is wood chip made only from kind of the, the smaller branches of trees. So, mm. anything under around two, two and a half inches in diameter. 
um, because this is where the, the greatest concentration of nutrients are in a tree. Um, you, you do it in, in, um, in the off season, so you, you do it in the dormant season. And so you, you're not taking the stem wood, which is more like a carbon to nitrogen ratio of 500 to 1. You're chipping the smaller branches. Um, and, and what you find, the carbon to nitrogen ratio goes anywhere from around 70 to 1. And it, the smaller chips can even be 30 to 1, which is wow. perfect for composting. And so if you use ramule chip woods for your um, applications for growing annual plants, you're going to see a lot less issues from uh, nitrogen robbery. But nitrogen robbery mainly happens where the, the wood chip is touching the surface of the soil. So try not to incorporate it. But if you are creating ramule chip wood, devote that just to your annuals. It's really, really going to help. Um, and then you can use more of the stem wood, wood chip elsewhere, be it for pathways um, that you can then compost down and after two years pick it up mulch your beds with it um and and anything else um so yeah i found ramiel chip wood is also great for generating heat for creating hot beds mm. out of season i created one in it, it it's around um five by five foot three foot high just adding ramiel chip wood a little bit of duck bedding just in the middle is like a, car, a nitrogen core um and some used coffee grounds and it, it generated heat for four months. Um, you just put a cold frame on top uh, and a bit of compost and you, you can grow in it. Um, and that that's something that I'm very excited about in the future because I'm looking at my climate. What grows really well in my climate? Two things, grass and trees. And so those that is what the my food system in terms of when I get my own homestead or farm in the future, that's that's my focus is is uh, kind of a tree and grass centric food system and everything else um, is designed around that. Mm -hmm. So uh, season extension, like the, the hotbed and uh, cold frame you mentioned, and do you have hoop hosts as well? Yeah. 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 So a really useful thing just to know for anyone who's maybe listening to this and is thinking about gardening. Um, there's a saying that like a layer of plastic, um, will extend your season by a month on either side. So if you've got a really short season, then extending it four weeks on either side of the year um, is, is quite valuable. It's amazing that you, I think you're probably maybe even at a higher latitude than I am. I've got to look at that. But um, it it is amazing because you hear these different zones and you assume that your your zone eight is going to be able to grow more food than my, grow, my zone four, but it really comes a lot of times down to that first and last frost dates. And as yeah. you mentioned, they're very similar to where I am here. So the, really the, the zone just means that I have uh, plants that might not survive the winter that would survive there because of the depth of the cold, not, not the length yeah. of the cold. It's really funny. Cause I, obviously I get a lot of comments on my YouTube and Instagram and I very often get comments of people saying, Oh well, it's all good for you. I only have five months of growing season. I'm like, yeah, yeah me, me too. It's, it's so funny. Um, and yeah, it's 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 interesting because uh, th th there is there is there is a funny joke. Please don't take offence. Um, but it's like, how do you know that someone's uh, a gardener's North American and it's, they tell you what zone they are? Because it's not really a thing in the UK. Because obviously, it's a it's a much smaller geographical reason um, mm -hmm. region. Um, but it, it is uh, it is important to look at. But I think rather than especially with a with an annual setup, the only things mm -hmm. that I overwinter are, 
are annuals that are really hardy. So like, you know, kale, certain varieties of kale will, will um, without protection, might survive down to minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if you're growing that, it then under a polytunnel, that, that, really does, um, that really does make a difference. So, yeah, the only difference in terms of my gardening is I could probably overwinter more than, I'll be able to overwinter more than you in an annual setup. But on the converse, you guys get um, warmer summers uh, and more sunlight. We're we're in a very kind of, you know, if it goes above, um, oh, I don't actually, I can't do the conversion. But um, uh, I see like uh, someone I watched, James Prigioni, based in um, New Jersey. Um, so not not too dissimilar of a climate than me. However, his summers are very long. He can grow amazing tomatoes outside, like. I am very lucky to get a tomato harvest outside because it's it's very wet, uh, it's very grey, and it's quite cool. Um, and so it's uh, it's interesting just uh, having an open discussion where at first people make assumptions about an environment and then suddenly realise, oh, maybe they've actually, maybe it's actually not that bad. <laughs> yeah, I might be in the Goldilocks zone, even though you wouldn't think it because you look outside or you see my content in the winter and it's quite cold and quite snowy but then you look at uh, david the good who yeah yeah down in the south and there's lots of things you can't grow there that we can grow here you know like there's there's limitations everywhere and for us here a lot of times the snow load the depth of the snow makes a difference and actually extends the zone so i have some some zone six and above perennials that i can grow here because they're covered in two or three feet of snow all winter so that we get yeah. minus 30 or 40, but that doesn't hit the roots of that plant. Yeah. Yeah. The, the insulation is great. And, and also um, a lot of people have been asking about if, if hotbeds are suitable for such cold temperatures and um, provided that you make them slightly wider than mine, like six by six foot and still three foot deep, you know, you can, you could even, I think you get, because if you're under a lot of snowfall, the problem that we have, we can't do it in the ground because we get so much rain um, mm. that it's always going to be soaked. However, if, it, if you can dig a hole and it's dry and then you can use the snow to act as an insulation, hotbeds are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's common here, not common, but to, they're used here within a greenhouse because you can mm. get that, um, well... That can go both ways too. You need to insulate in a lot of cases because you don't have that snow then if you're inside a greenhouse or a polytunnel that you keep up for the winter, if you can yeah. keep it up for the winter with the snow loads. Yeah. But so you're letting that cold get directly to it. But we get in a typical year, we'll get fall rains or we'll get that transition where you get rain, then some wet snow, and then it freezes, then it thaws. And some years like this, an El Nino year where we have, I just got a couple more inches of snow, but we we're down to bare ground a few days ago mm. and then we got some intense cold so ironically it looks like okay we have a mild winter but what that is doing is not insulating the ground so the frost can go deeper i remember mm. back in the uh be the early 90s i had a i was working down in toronto and uh working on this some specialty copper and lead work that i was doing as a sheet metal worker and we had a specialist from the uk over teaching and me apprenticing under him to to install lead on these historic buildings and that year um, we hardly had any snow but we had intense cold 
And he kept saying to me, he's coming from Britain. He says, why do your roads, why are they so bad? Like so potholed and rough. Cause he was riding his bike around. And it's like oh, that particular year, the frost went down seven feet because it was so cold and we had no snow <laughs> and typical here. Like the building code requires us to go down at least 42 inches. So that's the stand, the standard. So mm-hmm. that's where you get into those, those uh, zones. So, um, and I just go back to that quickly. So the zone, zone four, I'm not sure if it's minus 30 Celsius or minus 35 Celsius is what they would call that, uh, mm. the limitations that that zone causes. But what that means is that a plant that has a root system and a stalk, if it's above ground, can withstand cold down to that temperature before it dies. So in an annual system like you're talk- like we were talking about, like you mentioned, annual vegetables, doesn't matter. It's really just about the length of the growing season. But those yeah. perennials, and I focus on fruit trees and nut trees and berry uh, trees or bushes. So I have to be aware of the zones uh, in that regard because I want these plants to live for 20 years or more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the idea of um, with, with annuals, you're trying to grow as much as possible during the good season and then um, preserve it for but then the winter season, um, my my colleague Sam, he is amazing at fermentation. That's his speciality, and mm-hmm. so he's always showing me all of these fantastic different fermentation methods. He's now even making it. He, he's making his own soy sauce and stuff now. It's amazing, um, <laughs> and you know, from from just different beans that you can you can grow in the garden. So it's really cool to to see. I think. I think we're a little bit behind in the UK about with fermentation, but it's really catching on. And I think in terms of a tool in the future, that's one of the most exciting ones in in, in improving um, resilience. The other thing that I think is perhaps the most underrated skill, if you're looking to be more um, self-sufficient from a garden, is actually about how you cook with things in the kitchen. A lot of people kind of have to follow recipes and they'll look at a recipe and they think oh no I don't I don't have enough carrots to do this so I'll just do something else completely different but I think one of the best things that you can do is is looking at things starting to work out and learn things like flavor theory and look at what goes well together and what can substitute each other so most of the cooking that I do at home I'd say about 80 90% of the cooking that I do I don't follow a recipe I just go to a gut to the garden i harvest what i want and i've got a load of different spices and stuff and i just make something up and i test it as i go nine times out of ten it tastes absolutely delicious sometimes it's like yeah it's all right um but kind of starting to to practice with that in the kitchen to look at how you can be flexible and, and not be um so uh, dependent on recipes has has really um been kind of quite a seismic shift in terms of my own um my own approach to to being more resilient well and that comes down to the quality ingredients too like it less the better the food the less you have to do to it like it it's been a bit of a disservice i think to the wild food not going to call it an industry but hobby or whatever you would call it where (laughs) um, it seems to be always just a supplement so yes you can harvest forage berries from the woods but then get get mm-hmm. at home and add you know equal parts white sugar to, to make yeah. it to, into something palatable right so uh, 
learning to use the ingredients as natural as possible, but also knowing the substitutions, as you mentioned, and what yeah. how do you get the best flavor out of that sort of category of food items instead of that specific one. Mm. And and I'm assuming that's all in your book. Then is it like your? Yeah, so that that's that's the um that's a chapter that Sam explores. It's more formulaic based cooking, and he's he's got a chart which is every single vegetable and every single way to cook it. So if mm. you like if you like trying to cook a new vegetable, you can look at like how do you roast it, boil it, ferment it, all of these different things, um, just to make it as easy as possible. Um, and the thing is, we have to understand what are what are vegetables. Veg- all vegetables they used to just be what we kind of call like weeds or wild plants that have been over thousands of years domesticated, selected for providing taste. Um, there's a really, really good book I love uh, by Dan Barber called um, um, The Third Plate. Uh, Dan Barber is a chef and he has a fantastic attitude to to food Um and one of the things that really struck out to me is he's part of a project. Um, I think it's about saving and, and creating uh, new varieties, all just open pollinated heirloom varieties. And one of the things that he said, it, it, I think it was some project, I could be wrong, but it was along the lines of he was trying to create a new variety of butternut squash. And he asked the plant breeder, he said, look, I'm, um, what we're selecting for is, is um, you know, we want it to taste better. We want a butternut squash that tastes really good. And uh, the plant breeder was stumped and was like, wow, in all of my years, I've never been asked to grow something based on the characteristic of flavor, <laughs> which is quite, quite amazing. Like his whole life, he's been asked to like, grow things that are higher yielding, you know, better, you know, bigger, um, and not, and, and forgetting about the flavor side of things. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I know that was a slight tangent, but I think it kind of shows how our attitude has become so detached from, from how, where we started off with trying to select things that are more palatable, more flavorful, easier to digest. And it's now we've overshot that. And I was at the um, in 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 Oxford in England. There's a there's an annual farming conference called the Oxford Real Farming Conference, and there's a a, a beautiful um, quote that I heard there. I, I only just got back from it a couple of days ago, but a beautiful quote I heard is: "There's no such thing as junk food. There's either junk or food." Um, and I think that that's a, a really nice way of kind of uh, of, of saying that now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned, yeah, I like that uh, growing for and, and focusing more on flavor, which, as you mentioned earlier, that also the flavor profile typically uh, res- comes, comes. I was going to say results in, but actually comes from the, the higher nutrient level. So that's mm. where that flavor li- lies. But um, our focus, you know, as a, as a species, I guess, on getting the most productivity and the most efficiency out of everything. First of all, I mean, obviously you have to feed the masses, but I, again, I think you can feed the masses on uh, with smaller scale farming. But when you look around, I'm not sure what it's like there and it's not like this everywhere, but I'm always appalled at the amount of fallow land. I'm talking about mm-hmm. even the ditches between the, the roads or the, you know, the front yard of people's homes and so on. There is so much bare ground or so much ground that's at, we, bare well 
nature abhors a vacuum, so it gets filled by something. But when we try to fill it with man-made items like concrete pavement, uh, formal landscaping, grass in particular here in North yeah. America, probably there as well. Those are just opportunities to grow food. That that squash that you're talking about, instead of trying to plant it in a massive field and getting highest yield, highest productivity out of it, how about you stick a little pile of chicken manure on a lawn and put a seed in that or a couple of squash seeds? Because that's all it takes, a little tiny pockets of, nu- of nutrient, dense nutrients, yeah. and it grows this massive vine full of food. That, and it that could be everywhere. What- yeah, that's what got me excited about gardening as a kid. You plant this tiny little seed and then in mm-hmm. a few months later you have tomatoes. <laughs> and <laughs> it's funny because when I'm when I'm my garden beds, I want to grow what I want to grow. And sometimes people get offended that I've harvested that I pull out a dandelion because I don't want it. And I chuck it on my compost and like, oh, did you know you could have eaten that dandelion? I'm like, <laughs> I could have, but it's disgusting. And I'd rather grow something that <laughs> That I that I that I want to eat instead, um, and and with regards to the like the fallow ground, like there is there's more than enough space in terms of growing what we want to go. And I think I think um, this is something just that's important to be aware of. I think with um, large scale farming there and like looking at GMOs and all of these things, that they're, they're too focused on the detail. They're trying to find like they're trying to find the um, whatever the word is. I forgot, but they're trying to find that one thing that that's going to like solve everything, and it, it's like part of the the issue with with science or or new, the science of nutrition that they look at like one particular thing and then they'll they'll create like a tablet for that and forget about like nature is going to almost have something that provides that naturally in a food that also will happen to have the enzyme that actually makes it more bioavailable, and I think in terms of um, the focus of, of like large scale farming, they're trying to like find like small, like this one variety that's going to make amazing productivity. I'm like, yeah, but my experience is if you actually turn your focus to the soil rather than the variety, like look at the soil first, that is what makes the most positive impact in terms of, in terms of um, the, the yields and also the nutritional quality, because who cares? Even if the yields are, are equal, you, you've still probably got twice or three times as many nutrients. Well, just look at the, you know, the obesity pandemic and the epidemic. The yeah, epidemic. Oh, no. Yeah, is it epidemic? It's, it's oh, kind yeah. of a well, it is an epidemic, but it's become a pandemic because it spreads like 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 yeah, a yeah, virus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, you know you look at. Um, Oh, there's just so many flaws, but if you look at the entire system, you look at where we're sort of headed as a as a species, and all the restrictions that are are now looking, we're, we're, we're there's more and more laws coming into effect, and more mandates that we're forced to follow, and less freedoms. And I think um, the ultimate goal is is uh, you know the right thing to do. We need to kind of save the planet. We need to stop uh, extracting to the point of um, no return, but the solution to me is at the at the individual level, and I think guys like yourself and I'm trying to be this as well is that taking responsibility for your own food, but also looking at your plot of land and doing as much as you can to make that as healthful and productive and, and satisfying and um, ecologically sustainable. 
to me, that's the savior of the world. That's the savior of the planet and humanity. Like, let's mm-hmm. focus on that instead of having to have it come from top down. Let's be the the people at the bottom, you know, for you know, setting a good example and and increasing the abundance of of our space and then of the planet. I'm just I'm just curious, like what what got you into um, self reliance. Well, such a long story. Everything's more always more complex than uh, than the outs. You know what it looks like from the outside, and I explain it in multiple forms over in different videos and different platforms. Um, but if but you I, could like pinpoint like one thing, like that kind of turning point. What? Well, well, that's yeah, and that's the part that's difficult because calling mm. it a turning point implies that it was a an event that caused me to go down this path. But if I go all the way back they, to my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, back as a teenager, I was growing vegetables. What's that? It was written in the stars for you. <laughs> Not so much, but I, I think we're, I think some of us are just more natural. We just are more connected to the land innately and uh, not attracted to modernity and maybe that's literally just a like a, a social button that, or <laughs> that didn't get mm. turned on in me like or i'd rather be in nature i'd rather interact with the natural environment than i would with you know a, a society of people but anyway to go back for like i think if i look at the the um the beginning of my gardening career i was a teenager as well but i also hunted and fished from fish from a really young age I'd spent a lot of time in the woods. I saw everything as connected. I didn't see me as a gardener or a hunter or a fisherman or a forager or a shelter builder or whatever. I just saw myself as just a, uh, as a member, a community member of this natural community. And mm. to me, the gardening was the same as the hunting or the fishing. So it was understanding life from a very basic level. Like you said, take that seed and what it becomes and to look in the water and see the maybe the algae and then seeing the tadpole feeding on then the fish, the minnow feeding on the tadpole and the bigger fish feeding on that. And then me feeding on the fish. Like I saw that in mm-hmm. complete circle right from a young age. And I wanted to fully participate in that. So my self-reliance, my self-reliance and self-reliance in general has kind of been just sort of a pushback on society. And that's where I'd rather live that, be part yeah. of that life cycle and be in the circle of life instead of just observing it from the outside. I think if uh, if every child had a childhood like yours uh, or mine, we'd have a f- far fewer issues with society um, these days because there's a lot coming out of just a pure disconnection um, from the natural world. And it's causing not just physical illness, it's causing mental illness on a massive scale and, and it's exponentially growing, it seems. And I see that this divergence, this path that people are going down to, to more virtual living into mm. more, more urbanity. I, I think that's a real, I think we're going to, we're going to realize the error of our ways generations from now, even though I think we're discovering it, some of it now, but I think it's going to really impact the generations. Um, even your, your age, my daughter's age or yeah. around your age, um, they're going to feel that impact and then we have to unwind it. So I, I'd rather be an example of the unwinding now instead of waiting yeah. 50 years or hundred years. Yeah, and it's why I like to just be in my garden because I'm away from all that and I'm connected. Um, and yeah, it, it's fun because I always, in terms of gardening, I always, um, I I want to feed myself and it's an escape from society. But the thing that motivates me the most is curiosity. And one of the things that I want to kind of 
that I like telling people is that um, a garden or even a, a homestead can be an extension of your personality. Now, you might see like amazing examples online, but I think the danger that happens is that people end up copying without asking questions. And one system for, you know, one person's garden is going to be different to someone else's. Every single garden has its own unique list of opportunities, but also challenges. So, of course, take inspiration. Um, but one of the most powerful things that you can do, and this goes beyond beyond gardening, but one of the most important things that you can do is question things and always ask why and always find out, you know, to, to try and find out what the actual truth is. And so that's that's what I do with my gardening. It's, it's driven by curiosity. It's constantly asking questions. And from that, I can mold something that really fits my kind of lifestyle. Um, so that is kind of less of a of a practical tip, but that's probably been kind of my my main influence with the way that that I that I approach growing um, to feed myself. Well, you said a curiosity and everything, not just gardening, is so important. It's if you're not seeking the truth, you're not seeking adventure, then you really just stagnate, and it's pretty boring. Life can be pretty boring, and I can yeah. see how then you can be attracted to this virtuality, right? Not not reality. The reality is there. I just don't get how life can be boring. <laughs> life. Yeah, I guess, yeah, if you're that way naturally, and I don't know if maybe maybe everybody mm. is, but I, I look at it that from that perspective as well, and I don't then appreciate um, somebody else's depression. I can't fully understand it because I, I'm not that way myself, so I can see where that's just um, – you know, a privilege that I have that I don't suffer from, from mental illness. And yeah. and I tend to then relate it back to the, the way that I am connected to the land and connected to the circle of life and fully participating. And I see that as the solution, not as my you know, deficiency or inefficiency in inability to see other people suffering yeah. or, or the foundation of it. I, th- I think an important thing for me that I, I'd also want to get across is, I've been talking a lot about self-sufficiency um, and people like what is self-sufficiency and the different definitions. For me, my approach is um, how much I can produce from the land for myself. But it's not a it's not like a something like oh I can't share it. I I also like the concept of co-sufficiency, so community sufficiency. So it's kind of like the idea of like look after yourself first, and then you're in a better place to look after others and so what i want to do moving forward is to incorporate a little bit more of the co-sufficiency side of things so i want to grow as much food as possible and when i have an abundance i want to share it so then my next step is to start a bit of a um bit of a supper club or something to to have friends family and, and neighbors over because i think another thing that definitely needs um to be more present is in society is is uh people sitting around together at a table um sharing sharing uh sharing a meal and i think from there that that's what i think's missing from a lot of people is that that connection but it's it's so intrinsically connected to how how we um developed as humans it was sat around the campfire it's how communication start and then we we started cooking on the campfire and so and food would always be involved, and um, that's kind of the next thing that I need to do now. I feel like cool. I've got I've got this garden. I've got this project set up. I'm producing lots of food. Now it's time to start to to, to share that abundance with the community because 
it's all well and good caring for yourself, um, but it can also be you could you could end up becoming so in focused that 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 then you become very isolated in your community. Um, and so, kind of finding your people, even if they're not your next door neighbours, but finding your people is uh, is um, is always something to bear in mind um, in the background. Of course, that's what the online community. That's one of one of the positive effects of the, of yeah. um, internet and social media. Of course, is that you can connect with these communities. But you know, of course, is the danger of the echo chamber, and that's all you interact with, and that's mm. so you be, sort of become more isolated. Even though it looks like feels like you're in a community, you still become more isolated. So you have to try. So here's to- a, yeah, here's a question: Is it better to be in at least a community that might have an echo chamber? Than, than no community whatsoever because nothing is perfect no i agree i i think there is some value in it um i think it's i think it's possible and i see that it, maybe people you know they focus too much on that online community and then they don't mm. know who their neighbor is and that i can like i've been guilty of, of that myself and it like we belong to a food local food co-op mm. and that's sort of the way to to connect but there's struggling like we just basically donate it to to them donate financial um like money to them and you know we'll buy uh you know meals for the for the homeless or the just unfortunate less fortunate and so on but uh, they've asked me to contribute some of the excess food but i haven't had reached that point especially like uh, organic potatoes that are very expensive and there's no real suppliers of it mm. um but it's struggling like they can barely stay afloat because the interest is not there on a scale that's actually commercially viable so they have rent and and overhead costs and employees and so on it's just not enough people that are even interested at that level so yeah it it is a groundswell like you have to set left to do it yourself and be an example and i also always see it as this is my responsibility to do as much as i can for myself because not only it's not really um, selfish and self-reliant as much as it's I'm um, taking care of myself, my family. So I'm not a burden on the yes, system or other exactly. people, right? I'm not the one that has to go to the food bank because I wasn't prepared for the shortages that mm. we have periodically. I think this is going to be a drought year in, in North America because no, it's not just here, like all across the Midwest and, and even the East is no, there's no snow. Well, a lot of our, our groundwater comes from snow. It's not the rains that we get in the spring and the summer necessarily. So that could be a shortage of many things, including hay for animals. And I've seen this happen a few times over the years where people have to sell their herds because they they can't afford to feed them or it's just not available. So it's it the more you can be self, self-reliant on an individual scale and then share that experience. So you help other people mm. achieve that. And then you support each other. So you're kind of working your way out you know, into these different circles. And if you have a neighbor that can do something better than you can, because they have better land or more time to do that thing, then that's who you can quick, you know, immediately barter with and share resources with. And then you just keep expanding it outwards. Exactly. A, a prime example is saving seeds. It's, um, mm. Seed saving, it does require a bit of land to do it, especially for certain crops. And so if it was just like a small group of a few gardeners and you're responsible for maybe two or three crops, you can save a huge amount of seed. When, if, you've, if you've gone through the steps of the, the pain of saving the seed, 
but the outcome is you've got a huge amount of seed um and so that's a nice way of of doing it so yeah yeah it's true and many people we should just mention that really quickly they don't understand cross-pollination and cross breeding so mm. you think you're going to grow five different squashes and you'll save the seeds from those and then the next year you have some <laughs> abomination that grows yeah. from result oh, cool. of those so that's separation yeah. You know, if you're growing, maybe your neighbor that's far enough away, depending on the mm. species, like carrots, for example, or whatever, that you don't have this cross pollination, so you can get true true seeds um, for the yeah. next generation. So that's where that cooperation, even in seed saving, like you said, is really important. Yeah, and and my other attitude is um, at the moment we've got a really good. Uh, it's almost like a community seed um, seed bank, but. There, it's just this lovely kind of um, couple of people that run them. It's just down the road. And this is where I'm happy to put my money in because um, we need we need more, more, more seed producers like them. That's their job. And they're not owned by like a corporate entity or something. And so I kind of by, by buying seeds from them, I'm supporting them. And they're a, they're a, they're a key part of, uh, part of um of this kind of like my growing community um which is nice but yeah i i was just wondering like i've i've done this kind of experiment with with growing food and stuff i was wondering if there's any any practical tips or anything in particular that that you you or your your audience would would find um most helpful uh, related to, to to the annual gardening well i think from yeah from you i think um the i guess where to start and and at what scale on that because that's what's intimidating like mm. um what would you start with and i'm gonna you know preface that by saying you probably you're gonna talk about soil which you should you know what are the simplest ways and you did mention you know most of the ways that you could do that but you know what would be the steps if somebody's and I went through this um, transition at one point where I had moved into a small village and we had our half acre parcel and we were raising our kids. So they, you know, had the typical play areas and so on. But then, then the, um, then it hit the fan and I had to convert that lawn to food production. So where do you start in that case? You have a, you're sitting here with a, you know, typical residential lot and you need to grow some food. What would, where do you, how do you start that? Yeah. So, the before I forget, a top tip is if you ever feel overwhelmed, like there's too like your garden, there's just too much to do. Um, this is usually like maybe a year or two down the line when you might have all the excitement is slightly run over. If you feel too overwhelmed, there's nothing wrong with putting parts of your garden to sleep, just covering it with a few layers of cardboard or whatever for a year. You know, it's not going to become weedy and disorientating when you start again. It's it's right just sometimes to scale back. The other thing, it's a really important question, but it's like I think it it it's it always comes down to finance. Like, what is your budget? And so, if you have a low budget, one of the things that I wouldn't recommend is growing staple crops like potatoes or onions that are quite cheap to buy in bulk. Um, I would instead look at things that are a lot more kind of high value or um, nutrient dense. Um, so things like, and also thinking about things that um, if you have, if you create like 
polytunnel or like a little low tunnel um, or something? What can you grow that's kind of going to be either slightly out of season, so it'll have a higher value, um, or varieties that you can't get in shops? So one of the things that I, I always tell people to start with is if you're new to gardening, you want to get that first harvest under your belt so you can think, okay, this is possible. I'm on the right journey. And so the best thing to do is to grow, I think, pea shoots on an inside windowsill because they take around two to three weeks to grow. You can do it right through the year. And you can even, from your from your local shop, you can even um, buy um here in the UK, it's like dried peas or marrow fat peas. They're super cheap. You can you can grow them, get a couple of pea shoot crops, and then you can transplant them outside to go on and, and get the pods. So that's the first thing. Get that first harvest done to your belt. Um, the second thing is to grow the things that you know you enjoy eating. If you don't like turnips or if you don't like radish, <laughs> what's the point of growing them? I would argue that obviously homegrown is going to taste better and it's going to blow your mind like homegrown beets. Um, will completely change your mind. But it's important to, you've got to um, be very um, thoughtful about energy allocation. And that's that's your energy because energy is is finite. And I know modern life is very busy. There's so many pressures all around. And so if you just focus on maybe five to six different crops that you're excited about, it could be tomatoes, could be carrots, all of those different things, then that that is where i would start investing energy the first year should be about skills nothing is more powerful than having all of the skills all of the knowledge in your brain because the more knowledge and skills that you have in the brain the better you can problem solve and so giving yourself time to learn those skills is is i would say probably the best harvest that you can get in that first year because you know you know how to sow you know how to look after plants you know, basic soil prep. The In terms of one of the crops that would save you a lot of money, it would definitely be down the lines of leafy greens. These have a, a short shelf life, um, but there's also a huge abundance of um, flavors that you can choose from. And so in my polytunnel at the moment, I'm overwintering all sorts of types of like um, oriental greens um, and mustards and lettuces. And it's just it's like it's not the growing season but i've got this fresh food that i can enjoy you can always double up or triple up um your uh your undercover growing space so if it's colder you could have a hoop house and then you could have a cold frame underneath and then on particularly cold days you could even save some some like bubble wrap if you ever get bubble wrap from from packaging or from an order save it back because that's like a great temporary insulation that you can then put over um, I know none of that was very succinct, but I was kind of just trying to splurge all of all of like the top things to think about um, when starting off. But I honestly believe like, you know, whatever, if something bad happens or, or whatever in two years time, the thing that you'll regret the most is not having the knowledge or the skills. Yeah, um, right. So, yeah, that that that's my priority. Yeah. And for us, um you know, people always think that there has to be some major crisis event in order to have been prepared or you yeah. see prepper doing thing, preppers doing things, assuming it's like the next nuclear war. But um, we saw four years ago that that was an event that caused us all to, you know, 
not travel and so on. And, and, you know, yeah. if you had food, like I didn't feel the impact of that, for example, and people in my position didn't feel much of an impact. I had a financial crisis. I lost my business. So being able to grow food was a valuable skill and having the infrastructure and the knowledge in place prior to that event allowed me to be prepared. Yeah. So as you said, it's like did little things, you need to do little things to prepare. So um, like, if you're getting into gardening and you have a limited amount of space, you can grow in a bucket. The The greens that you're talking about often don't need full sunlight or a shorter mm. period of sunlight. Cause that's a limit. That's not just a limitation for food. It's all energy. Like, you know, the big push to go to renewable energy, renewable energies like solar panels. Well, a lot of times you don't have that South facing orientation or you have to literally cut some trees down to do some damage mm-hmm. to the environment in order to put a tree a solar panel up to collect the energy so but you at least to, you'll at least you'll get a lot of wood chip to improve your soil <laughs> yeah yeah i no longer look at it as a negative either you can you can have the best of both worlds but yeah people just have these limitations and i understand that and i've been in those positions too so you know the, the leafy greens and some other vegetables you can grow in sort of a shady spot or less than ideal spot um and again if you don't have this the uh the in-ground um, growing location, a bucket, or maybe it's a little tiny pocket of soil here and there. Cause it doesn't people, again, like you said, you see these big garden, beautiful gardens online. You think that's, it's that or nothing. Well, mm. you can throw a, a little piece of a little bit of a veg, a little bit of soil almost anywhere and you can grow something. I mean, be aware of, you know, contamination and so on, but um, just little pockets here and there, even yeah. within your your normal formal landscape or between your sidewalk and your house or whatever. It's really funny that last year I was um, walking down the street and it was this kind of, it was along this fence line. It was all tarmac and it was a fence between the path uh, or the sidewalk and the car park. And there's a crack and it was next to where um, the locals put out their bins, um, which would include food waste bags. And what had obviously happened was a little piece of tomato fell out and there was a tomato plant growing and it was late in the season, September, uh, but there were these little green tomatoes and they would never have got to anything. But it was like a, it was like a demonstration that, you know, plants want to grow. They, they don't want to die. Um, so if you can utilize that and, and gently encourage them, yeah, you don't need a massive garden to, to, to start to make that that impact in that transition the other thing is is um i'm starting to see it more and more there's there's a lot of people who have gardens or have outdoor spaces but have no time to look after them and so they're, they're like look if you can you there's there's um part of a local permaculture group and every now and then we get an email circulating from someone who's got in touch who says we have this land we can't use it it's so sad but we'd mm. love to see someone else use it and so mm-hmm. That's where, like, knowing the community, going to your, your local bar or pub or cafe or whatever, and just don't be afraid to just ask. Like, um, it, it's amazing what happens through word of mouth, um, and uh, and it doesn't have to just appear on Facebook Marketplace for something to be available. That's right. Yeah, I uh, tell the story often about you know ten, twelve years ago that um, a local farm was left fallow for quite a number, like probably 50 years actually. And a, uh, wow. a developer, future developer, just small scale guy bought it and was just parking it. And it 
was 118 acres with 18 acres of pasture or field. Yeah. And it was still field because it was the soil was so poor, nothing had grown wow. on it other than a few conifers and a bunch of moss and you know, sedges. But uh, I got that land for free. Like he was just happy to have somebody working that land. So it looked like it was occupied and to, you know, improve it. So that went on for three years. I grew crops. I raised cattle. I raised pigs, chickens, um, all kinds of stuff. So that was available. And it's surprising how often that's available. And I found that because I had asked another farmer who was suggesting that I could use his land. And he said, well, maybe this one would actually be better um, for you. Mm. And, and that was available. So you, if you if you ask around, I mean, I would, like, I, <laughs> I would love to have help um, on some level with some of what I'm doing, but just the way things are right now, I just can't do that. But um, another time and place, and maybe in the future, I will actually be looking for somebody to sort of help uh, caretake mm. one of my uh, one of my homesteads because it is overwhelming. And people who think they don't have the time or the energy or the resources, I started pretty cheaply. I, I, I know cheaply, and from my perspective, is not the same as from a lot of people's who who don't have access to resources or don't have the you know the income mm. that I was able to generate so I understand there's limitations but I work work really really hard and I think one thing I've always wanted to demonstrate on my in my uh, platforms is the amount of work that one man can do mm. and there's a lot of disbelief even in the homesteading community that I have done all this alone they think there must be some crew in the background I get those comments all the time but yeah, I yeah. literally have built these homesteads alone, completely alone. The one I'm sitting in right now has been more of a family affair, but between my wife and I, we built this house. We, we built, um, some of the other things and she maintains that she, she's making cheese. She's, uh, you know, fermenting food. She's preserving food. She's making sourdough bread. Like she's doing all these things that, that are going on behind the scenes, but the infrastructure itself, I've, I've been able to create that and if I go back, say, 14 years ago, 13 years ago, when we lost our business and I converted that lawn to garden, again, I did it all myself. It was 35 feet by 35 feet. So it's at um, 10 meters by 10 meters. Mm. And after the initial building of that, so what I did, is I double dug, mm-hmm. made really intensive, um, high productive beds. So double dug it and filled it with manure, but also fish remains, especially fish remains. And and straw and then i got a bunch of wood chips and put it on top that garden was super like if you see the pictures from that period the plants are like like you can barely walk through this garden it's just so abundant and that year and the following year i literally i doubt i spent an hour a week maintaining it so mm-hmm. after the initial work putting it in yeah, I know. The maintenance of that garden over that year was minimal and then the harvest season was busier but Again, I just did that as we had time. Yeah, that, there's a, a people have the same thing. They're like, "Oh, there's no way that one person could do that garden." And I've 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 been overly conservative with this is the what the book is based off. But overly conservative, I said about four hours a week of time needed. Um, it was less, and there were a few times through the season where I might have done half an hour here and there. But part of that is because of the skill. It, like, not someone new coming into it isn't going to experience that first. But mm-hmm. there is, it, it is, it is a snowball effect. It definitely is a snowball effect in terms of 
um, in terms of how that how that increases. And there, there's this love. I can't remember where where I heard this from, um, but it's stuck with me ever since. It's really easy. We will we'll overestimate what we can do in a day, but we'll all, always underestimate what we can do in a year or like ten years. It's that compoundingness. So all of the people are like, oh, there's no way you've done that. It's um, it's <laughs> like when you when you just put your head down and the days start to roll into weeks and months. It's, it's unbelievable what humans are capable of. Yeah, and I appreciate that most people aren't focused on. Um, what I'm able to focus, amount of time and energy I'm mm. focusing on this particular thing that they're seeing a lot of is exceptional because I don't have a job I have to go to anymore. Yeah. Um, so of course that's limitation, but that wasn't the case during most of my life and most of my career. I was working and raising a family and still doing those things. So yeah, yeah. it's not, and I'm not, a, and I, my point is I'm not doing this to brag. It's quite the opposite. I'm not exceptional. There's no, I have no skills or strength that other people don't have. I, I mean, obviously again, what's, with exceptions, but, um, I'm not an exceptional human being. So if I can do it, you can do it too. And it really comes down to just incremental steps and taking that step every day. As you mentioned, the the amazing, what, um, you underestimate what you can do in a year. I typically look back and think, the hell was i doing like i barely got anything done the last year or five years compared to what i think i should have done but um but yeah i think you'd be surprised we're we're very self-critical creatures anyway looking ahead like it's like okay yeah fine looking back we're like oh we could have done this but um if you're like oh what was i thinking this time three years ago uh, yeah it's it's funny our psychology but you know it it keeps us occupied (laughs) (laughs) well that's the thing so i think that's a a final message i would like to get across in this interview is that um you know life's gonna pass you by anyway you may as well be doing something productive and meaningful and that um there's a lot of meaning in this life it's not prepping to me i'm just using this word prepping because i'm the way i'm feeling lately and becoming more and more prepared not just self-reliant or not just the wilderness living Mm. type um guy but um the process itself is the reward. So I don't feel like I'm sacrificing things when I'm preparing for this major crisis, this major event. I'm, I'm living life to the fullest in every single moment of every day I'm loving and, and being feeling fulfilled. And that is the journey. That's the excitement to me. There's a reason why a lot of gold winning Olympians fall into depression afterwards. And it's because they've reached the top. They're like, what's next and then they lose all sense of purpose and so you've got it you've got it bang on and it's exact i i resonate completely it is it is that journey it's like always you know it's almost like a an infinite goal in a sense there's always something to be doing and so i think that kind of protects your mindset in a way to be able to get into into that position because it's constantly striving forward and not not reaching the top and then you know giving up well, then in my case, I know I can say every failure is an opportunity. And I, like I had issues where I had to move my last homestead and even the audience is saying, wow, that was the best thing that ever happened to you. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I look at each failure as each replacement, each thing I have to tear down and redo. It's like, wow, I get to do it again. I get to do it better this time. Like it's, yeah. it's exciting. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have that paralysis of analysis. I don't look at a project and then think I can't do this perfectly or I can't do it the way I want to, I'm not going to do it at all. I just do it. And then if I say it doesn't work out, then I start over again and, and, uh, just enjoy that process. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, I think, is there anything else you would, is there anything uh, we missed that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, I think the only thing uh, for me to say is it's, it's almost it's slightly connected to the be curious, but it's to always spend a bit of time experimenting because like, I, I could list 50 ways of growing a potato. Um, and so what I do every year is I'll choose two or three kind of important crops to me. And I'll always just try a few new um, heirloom varieties that I haven't tried or like two or three other methods of growing them. Because what I'm constantly doing is I'm building up my bank of knowledge to know, okay, these are the, currently what I know is the best way of doing each thing. Even if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. I'm not dedicating my whole crop to trying that new technique or that new variety, but I'm constantly striving. And so what I'd say is on your gardening journey, um, you, I kinda, you, you can create two lists. You have one list, which is your hero crops. These are varieties, one variety for each crop that you know uh, as a default is going to do well for you. And the other one is like um, is like the special crops. So it's like one or two varieties that might not provide the same yield or the same um, a kind of, you know, constant hero-ness of that hero crop. But it adds something different. It might be a different flavor characteristic. It might be something that comes in in a different season. Um, and and those two documents, if you just keep those close and you always make sure you have have seeds for both, um, that that for me has has helped a huge amount over the years to to create a highly productive garden. I think that's good advice. And as far as um, your book and your content, I encourage my viewers and listeners to you know go check out Hugh's um, content because. You know, I've been watching it and I'm in Canada. You would think well, like it's so unrelated that, that it's not transferable to here, but it's quite the opposite. I think that curiosity is part of it as you learn what somebody else is doing and you apply what you can, but you'd be surprised how much of it carries over, crosses over, and that it's yeah. valuable information from for everybody. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, well, just uh, tell us again, just the audience, what, one more time, where they can find your your upcoming book, and as well as the uh, where they can find you online. Yeah, so my upcoming book called the Self Sufficiency Garden. Um, you can get from uh, in in North America any any good bookshop. Uh, you can get it from Amazon, or you can order from us. Regenerative Press um, is the website, and uh, yeah, come come find me on Instagram and YouTube. Um, my name's Hugh Richards. It's spelled the Welsh way, H-U-W. And uh, say hello and uh, let's chat vegetables. <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll talk again uh, soon. I'd really like to continue the conversation on another podcast. So we'll have to set something up in the future. Yeah, I, I could maybe invite Sam on as well if you're interested. Yeah, I would be interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If anybody else, if you recommend anybody else too. Of course. Yeah. And I'll send you a copy of the book as well. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you.